Hi everyone, it's B here. Just want to say that our recording um, of our voices um, isn't the best quality, so sometimes we have to do these um, recordings in the office, and some, sometimes we don't have our microphones with us. So um, I do apologise now, but enjoy, and yeah, speak to you later. Welcome to Inexos Access All Areas. My name is B, and I will be co-hosting this series of podcasts with my Inexos nerd Hayden Murdoch. We will be delving deep with you all to explore everything there is to know about this iconic band of brothers in excess, sharing music, tours, videos, albums, and oh, so much more. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 104 in Excess Access All Areas, the podcast that aims to dive deep into all things great about this band, get them into the Hall of Fame, have a bunch of fun, and do it with my partner in crime, Full Moon Dirty Hearts. We were hopefully took people back into the world of Capri, and uh, Mark definitely sort of uh, painted a very vivid picture of the time. He really did take you back to um, a place and a time. Talking to um, a few people, they said they actually felt like they were on holiday in Capri. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we, we want to, as I said, get a warts and all account of things as they happen. And we're so lucky really to have access to Mark, who's been uh, not only an uh, honorary patron of the show, but just a great support to us. Um, and having him be able to, I guess, uh, as a producer, uh, be there at the time and uh, articulate with really great memory uh, what actually occurred all the way down to the the water taxi over to the island to the shenanigans that went on uh, the island and the recording process and just the sort of we're fortunate enough to have him sort of articulate that which uh, uh, I hope came across and we, we, we I guess think it did because uh, a lot of people sort of reacted well to that. I guess one of the things that uh, I was excited about listening to Mark last week was uh, the fact that he sort of said, uh, and I think it came across, that we weren't going in to record Full Moon Dirty Hearts, okay? Uh, we were going in to record and build on the momentum of Welcome. You know, the you know the album became Full Moon Dirty Hearts. You know, there then was a single called The Gift, and there was a bunch of stuff that happened. But essentially, Mark said last week, we just wanted to take the momentum of experimentation from Welcome, continue it, and Full Moon Dirty Hearts was was the outcome of that particular uh, experience. Really together, good. I can't wait that we're going to speak to him further about um, each song. Um, I've listened to quite a lot of it, what you did. It was brilliant, really well, good. Again, I guess you missed a little bit of last week, so you probably became a bit of a fangirl uh, of did. the show and listened I in fre- with fresh ears. Yes, it was very good, very <laughs> exciting. Um, it just takes you back to that early 90s feeling as well um, when he was talking about the different um, how music had changed from the 80s to the the 90s so yeah um, I'm really looking forward to listening again we will in fan engagement probably do some follow-up with people who gave their thoughts and things so we'll save that for later but uh, I guess that's always been how's your excess week been has there been much going on in your world I know there's been a few little things I've uh, sort of sensed from your messages and things like that which we will talk about i.e. decadence a bit later but uh, what's come across your desk this week um well apart from that not a lot really I've just been talking to 
lots of people about the bus tour and getting that together. So thank you to um, Helen and Darren. You've been absolutely amazing in keeping me going with all of this and all the things that you've done. And thank you for everybody booking your hotel rooms and uh, getting that all sorted. And uh, yeah, lots of fun things yeah. to happening. We've even got a quiz happening. Because we, we turn two, B, don't mm. we? We turn two. So one more week, it was seven more sleeps, and we turned two years of age as a podcast. And uh, last year was Hard Rock Cafe, a little bit low-key. We did a sort of a, a little uh, live sort of uh, broadcast at the Hard Rock. But this 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 uh, year is going to be bigger and, and better. And uh, uh, let me just say that the, the sale of Decadance couldn't have come at a better time for us <laughs> as we tip everything back into this particular uh, bus trip. So um, I want to go to my way to thank you for doing all the planning and the organising. I've absolutely picked up. No, no little finger to help. However, we compensate in different ways. Yes, we'll talk about that later. Anyway, <laughs> um, what was I going to say about that? So I'm going to talk to you on air about this, Hayden. Right. <laughs> so next week, I have no clue what we're going to talk about next week, but the, the week of the party, I was thinking, let's do an uncut live um, broadcast from the actual um, dinner party. Oh, okay. What do you think? And then we can get Carmen in and everybody to have a little chat on the line. Does that mean we've got to get Curtis working during the uh, the broadcast during the dinner? No, no, <laughs> no. He can he can enjoy himself. No, we just switch Kurt, Kurt on. Is our um, Nick Egan of the day, isn't he? He's going to be yeah, our, yeah. our videographer and everything there. So, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, anything we can do to bring the world into the the party that'd be great. Not everybody can make it, so yeah, I think it's a great idea. Yes, so it'll be uncut, so uh, bear with us, everybody. We'll be hearing lots of clinking of knives and forks and lots of uh, cheers. All right. Well, uh, B, we've uh, also like to welcome our patrons aboard. Now, I haven't asked you at all, but if we had any new patrons come on board this week or or not? I know we had a, a very little influx there about a week ago. At this point in time, which is Thursday, no, we haven't. Okay. Well, before we go on to that, though, unless you've got it in your news, we should say a big happy birthday to Jimmy Barnes. Is it really? It's his birthday today. Oh, right, 66. Mr. Jimmy B. Happy birthday, Jimmy Barnes, the man from Good Times, but many other things in his career. Well done, Jimmy. Uh, yeah. Who would if have you thought he'd a patron, Jimmy? That'll be fine. Who would have thought he'd make it to sixty-six? This guy's drunk more Jack Daniels than the refinery uh, vats that Jack Daniels is made in. Jimmy, <laughs> Jimmy at sixty-six. Uh, that's 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 a miracle in itself. Yeah, but Jimmy at sixty-six is pretty good. He's doing he okay. Must be all the amazing. golfing he's doing. Oh, I think his wife looks after him. That's what it is. I'd like to say hello to everybody outside on the highway. Let's all say hello to everybody outside. It's about 10,000 people at least. Well, hello to our honorary members, Nick Egan, Mark Opitz, Cameron Adams, Mary Woods and Darren Jones. Our patrons, Sue D, Joe Robbins, Carmen, Laurie, Carrie-Anne, Danielle, Sarah Markham, Sarah Camia, Dr. Jim, Katie, Lisa Mack, Lisa Calloway, Anne-Marie, Susan P, Susan B, Foxy, Pedro, Mandy, Matt, Linda, Yvonne, Caroline, Amanda V, Amanda H, Leon, David, Tracy, Paul Jolie, Paul Boozy, Paul Bridges, Paul Buckley, uh, Carrie-Anne, no, (laughs) Sandrine, Ella, 
Hi, Carrie, and I hope you're having a lovely holiday. Okay, Ryder, Tony, Erica, Abigail, Martin, Stefan, Val, Jim, Matey, Kelly, John, Jackie, Sean, Sheila, Shannon, Helen, Brett, Suzanne, Glenn, Laurel, Bard, Genevieve, Shelby, Manny, Laurie, Jill, Lowie, Laos, Lily, Jamie, Heidi, Paula, Lisa, Angie, Michael, (laughs) um, I'm losing it today, Um, Nancy, Juliet, Jenny, Scott, Anthea and Maria. Hi, welcome to the podcast. We'll get into the topic today uh, with Mark. Uh, we're going to be talking track by track today about Full Moon Dirty Hearts. So uh, really nitty-gritty music stuff, the production, you know, the songwriting, um, feeling of the song some 29 years later, the instrumentation. So really just going to talk songs today. We did enough backdrop last week, but it's all about the music today. Right in my wheelhouse now of um, all the sounds and the engineering and everything. I can't wait. I'm really looking forward to it. Bea, what's the time for? It's time for the news. This is Manny from the UK, and here is the news. Well, good news, B. The album Very Best Of is having a little bit of a rebirth. It's gone from 39 to 35. So uh, it's been a while since it's been in the twos and the twenties or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we are hoping that can occur. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, yes, it's uh, ticking and tracking in the right direction. Well, did you notice actually that In Excess Official was, um, I think they've been listening to us really, uh, have been talking about um, Never Tear Us the Part that was um, being in Shazammed everywhere. You mentioned that last week, I think, in the episode. I did. did. And there's a few other tracks there too, isn't it? Yeah. They uh, put a, a post out about it. So thanks for listening, uh, Official In Excess. <laughs> well, I want to check out what these Shazam metrics are. So it's a little bit of homework, uh, actually, for me, because uh, that would be interesting to know. Um, also, too, a uh, friend of the podcast, probably the world's biggest In Excess fan, has seen In Excess more times than anyone on the planet. Uh, our good friend MM found himself flying up to Tamworth for the Country Music Festival. He did put out an interesting post going, Country music may not be my thing. But anytime I can get a chance to see Andrew play live, you know, blah, 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 I would. Conveniently and photo opportunistically, MM doesn't miss an opportunity to get into a photo with uh, Andrew. And uh, there were some good little photos there of him uh, with Andrew there. And also Andrew himself uh, posted lots of good stuff uh, about some of the songs he was playing and some live stuff there. Your song, uh, You're My Rock or whatever it is, was uh, given a bit of a rotation. Yes, well, he's just released it, hasn't he? And MM did go on to say, and I think his little post that Inexus have sort of dabbled in a little bit of a country tinge stuff with things like Shine Like It Does and Just a Man and By My Side and things like that, some sort of acoustic country tinges, uh, which he's correct in saying. In terms of gigs, uh, B, uh, there's a hotel in Melbourne. Now, this is an interesting hotel. I have mentioned it before on the podcast. It's called the Burvale Hotel or the Burvale. Inexcessive, the Victorian arm of Inexcessive, are playing there on August the 27th. This was the hotel that was always filmed in the in the pub scenes in the show Prisoner, Cell Block H. Uh, inexcessive, as in the Victorian Armour, playing there on August 27th. Get your tickets. And those tickets are on Tixel B. We've been talking about Tixel lately. The Live Baby Live guys, I love the moniker of their show, B. The uh, Live Baby Live, the Inexcess show. 
have called it the boogie call. <laughs> Is there a more 70s word than boogie? But uh, they're playing on June 18th. So if you are in Brisbane, do yourself a favour. Uh, all the way over to America. Now, we have a patron who's very close to this venue, so I'm very excited reading this thing out. But in the city of Milwaukee in Wisconsin, uh, the Kick Experience guys are playing at a place called Shank Hall. Now, hopefully that's not a prison bee <laughs> on October 29. So there could be uh, one or two of our very special patrons who are living near there in Wisconsin could get along to that gig. Uh, which is pretty cool. So uh, that's just a little bit of gig news, B. Um, you were going to go to the Don't Change gig. I think you might have changed your plans last week. That would have been two or three weekends in a row in Sydney, wouldn't it? So uh, I guess you're probably itching for a little bit of live music soon, aren't you? Yeah, it was sad. I wasn't very well. And the thought of actually driving six hours there and six hours back um, yeah. it was sad. But I heard that it was an absolute brilliant night um, on Hallow Grand of In Excess. Yeah, anybody... Well, you did John Steve recently so you have had a little dose haven't you yeah yeah i've had a little dose but yeah i am gagging for some more oh did you did you um hear about the one heart concert uh no what's that about yeah so lismore unfortunately got flooded terribly and i feel that john barris might be part of this i'm not sure i can't i saw you post that but that was you that was you being hopeful more than official wasn't it yeah, yeah, but it's literally from where he lives, mm. so I'm sure he'd be part of it. But John Stevens will definitely be there. Grimspoon. Well, Grimspoon are a Lismore band. Yeah, and uh, John Stevens and John Farris are very good friends, you know, etc. So they could that could maybe potentially work. Maybe John will come and play some drums mm. or whatever. That so. be great. W- yeah. When's that on? Yeah, the, yeah. Tickets go on sale on Saturday, which would have been yesterday. Yeah. Um, and I know that uh, so many hundreds of tickets have gone out for the Lismore um, people as well, free. So this is for, for those who don't know the big flood relief concert because, as, mm. as Australia seems to have, we either have relief concerts for floods, we have them for fires, bushfires, we have them for a whole bunch of things. But uh, this is a very mm. worthy cause, so do yourself a favour if you can get along. Yes. All right. Uh, just moving along, we don't talk a lot about merchandise here, but this is a bit of a shout-out to probably our friends who um, – you know, in David and Pedro have their their collector site, but uh, I did notice on one of the very popular uh, sales type uh, platforms called Disc- Discogs, uh, as in discography, there is a, a vinyl version of Shining Star with obviously some good B sides that uh, relate to the time and a couple of live versions and things. Uh, so it's a four track uh, vinyl uh, version of Shining Star, which would be quite rare. It's only going for four pounds. What? Plus, plus, plus all the deliveries and things, et cetera, there that add up to probably 30 bucks. But uh, if you are a collector out there and are looking for things, and we know we have a lot of collectors listening, uh, I just thought I'd shout that out there for people if they did want to add that into their collection. Because at that time, that they'd moved to CD singles, uh, they had some stuff on tape and things, but not so much vinyl anymore. I think Disappear might have been the last traditional vinyl single at the time, which was maybe about 12 months before. So, uh, yeah, a bit of a shout, shout out on that one. Uh, also to the girls behind the scenes who do the newsletter episode or newsletter 103 uh, was a beauty. Uh, if you're not subscribing to our newsletter, please do so. It's not difficult to do, B. How do, how do people subscribe? Go by our website, inaccessaccessalllareas.com. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of stuff on there. I learn, learn uh, the girls do a great job in doing research and history and things. And it's a, it's a great little sort of weekly uh, sort of centrepiece to, you know, the band and what we're doing and just, you know, the, the history and time of what occurred on this day or week a year ago. B, over to you. 
thank you, Foxy, for everything you've been doing. Um, Foxy's going to hopefully get a little street team for us together. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah, which is going to be a social street team. Mm. So if she sees a post on um anything to do with in excess, they're going to give the show the podcast a shout out, which would really help to um just let other fans know about us. People. We need uh we need a we need a street team, a, a USA yeah, presence. We, we need people ringing radio stations requesting songs. Mm-hmm. We need a lot of people who are in the USA who listen to us, sort of just keeping the the, the band's name up in neon lights. And that could mm-hmm. be as I said, ringing in requesting songs. It can be uh, uh posting things, blogging things, sharing files, all sorts of ways you can do sharing a podcast because all this stuff adds up you know when people mm-hmm. get into the rock hall of fame it's like people go oh well gee i forgot about that band they're really good and we've yeah. had so many people on our journey i guess you know especially even with full moon dirty hearts last week i had some people go yeah bypass that album i didn't realize how good it was you know and part of our mission is to sort of re-educate the world about the greatness of in excess so usa and everywhere please uh, keep doing and keep keep shouting out loud yeah, so if you if you don't want to be a patron, you can help that way and become part of our um, social streets team. I also want to give a shout out to Maria, our new patron. Um, she has done something with astrology. And so um, if you're a patron and you fancy um, to know a little bit more about the band um, via ast- astrology, then let us know and we can send you out that um, those those um i think she's done some sort of like little magazine on it. <laughs> okay all right well that's the news of the week B. hey this is tim farris well done hayden and b you've made my brothers and i very proud of what you've achieved so far a big hello to all your listeners and nxs fans Hi, this is Felicia from Everett, Washington, USA. You're listening to NXS Access All Areas with Hayden and B, and it's time for the topic of the week. The thing about Full Moon Dirty Hearts even though there were albums after that elegantly wasted with Bruce Fairbank, who was one of my heroes, liked his style of production, what he'd done with Bon Jovi and all those sort of bands in that era for that kind of sound. He did a really good job as a brass player producer. Elegantly wasted, I just as a coda really to Full Moon, in my opinion. I remember hearing that album, I could appreciate soul and I could appreciate that, but I could also appreciate the fact that there was something missing. And the last time I saw any of that, that I saw it personally would have been when we were doing um, Full Moon. First time that the band had stepped out of their comfort zone to record, everything they did after that was recorded in Canada, etc. Yeah, so I don't know, I don't know. It, it was a tough time for Michael dealing with what he had to deal with mentally and all that. You know? Well, sometimes I guess, you know, if we think back to some of the famous albums, whether it's Rumours, Fleetwood Mac and different things, some great music can come out of tragedy and angst. I died of money.
starts off with Days of Rust, which we had a sort of discussion about last week. I won't waffle on about my thoughts on it. Um, do you have an experience, a memory, or a thought about that particular track? Yeah, that was one of the tracks that was sort of had been re- re- rehearsed up in the south of France to, at Michael's place, and so the lyrics might have been finished, but it was sort of in in, in the ballpark. I don't have any specific memories of Days of Rust in terms of what my usual routine would have been was to okay, let's listen to it. Let's just record everything. We record everything as we as we're doing it, regardless if it's, it's go, we're not going for a take. We just record everything. Yeah, you know. And my style of that is also in the control room. I set up a mix of the whole thing, so I want to envisage the whole thing as finished as sounding as possible straight away. So I, I might have subtle effects going, but I compression. I set up the mix huts, and that mix I, I also send through to the the artists themselves, so they can be having their headphones. But they also have control, which allows them to boost themselves into that mix. As a uh, a layman listener production sort of connoisseur, what I notice when I hear that song is how upfront and clear and uh, present are Michael's vocals. That seems mm. to stand out amidst a quite a heavy, grungy sort of track. You get mm. a quite a, a good. Uh, you put your headphones onto that, you can really hear Michael right up front and close with the the vocal performance there. That's right. I think the Japanese microphone is Sankin. Really scouted the uh, area to find a good place to put him. I didn't want any ambience around his vocals at all. Okay. You know, I wanted to be able to, if you're going to put the ambience, I wanted to control whatever ambience went on there. So I wanted to record in dead spaces as much as possible. Okay. So we found a corner for him to do, which was great little corner because, you know, if you just look to his right, Step forward one step, look to his right, all of cut through the island would be laid out underneath him, you know, in a east to west um, <laughs> projection, you know, because we were up quite high. That's obviously, you know, I always look at John as later in the NXS's career as being a bit like the George Harrison. He came up with more and more really good material towards the end of NXS's recording time. He's obviously come uh, to the studio with this track that him and Michael have put together. What's your memories of The Gift? I've got a lot of memories of that track. Many, many, many. The Gift was originally called Sud de France. Do you know that? No. Sud de France means south of France. John was looking for a title because John came up with that while at, at Michael's house with everyone else in the south of France. But what John tended to do, and he was way ahead of his time, he had a whole digital recording set up and loops and things that he could fire. This way back, you know, when people weren't, were only just getting into all this kind of thing. Hmm. He, could, he could set up grooves, loops, play to that loop, then play guitar, play bone. And, in fact, that, that riff that you were talking about, I don't know if someone said Gay Timmy. That's John playing that, wow. playing the gift. In fact, what, you know, I, I listened to it and, I, and um, I thought, gee, it's how we recre- recreate this. And I said, well, to me, anything is valid. You know, you don't record singles, you don't record demos, you don't record albums, you record. Hmm. So I said, John, 
Only is that what you've got as the basis for that loop and your with that guitar, everything. That's it. Let's put that in there and let's let's just build on that loop and just create this monster that just gets out of control. So we so that guitar, that all that riff you hear and all that stuff is John playing everything in the south of France. And I've taken that and I put it onto two tracks on the multi-track. And then we've gone out, looked for okay, how can we just get this out of control? You know, we do musical shifts in it as well. But, you know, there's other effects like nuclear bombs going off in it, there's animals in it, there's screaming, Michael's little side secret comments, or there's just so much hidden stuff in, in the gift. So I understand there's a recording of the album, as you said. You're not aiming to just record or record singles or whatever. Then there's the marketing of the album. And I guess really what singles really from the late 70s, 80s onwards became sort of marketing tools. Now, I guess a band, though, are going to record an album and go, well, we really love this song to be the the promotional centrepiece of the album, it's something we're proud of. Did you feel the gift was a unanimous choice for that to go out first? Did you have an involvement or how did that come about to be the spearhead single? We weren't really thinking that was a single. We weren't really thinking of anything that, that could be a single, you know, maybe a time or something like that or in your back of your head or other songs that was coming up. But we into that with that mindset of, Okay, like we would have done with an, a band if it's on a second album and they're just trying to break it and nearly there or they have broken it like 10 yeah. years ago. You have your three singles and yeah. you call them tracks. In Excess had passed that point. With Kit, yeah. they passed that point. Now it's time to turn In Excess into an institution. And that's what we're trying to do with Welcome to Wait. It was my vision. Let's really explore stuff. Let's not try and do what other people are doing. Let's not do what we've done before. Very much that, you know, be yourself, be yourself. You'll never be disappointed for yourself. Different era, you know, we didn't think about, oh, this will be a great single or that would be a great single. It was sweating about turning an idea into a song, let alone, you know, having it down. It's interesting, you know, and with the gift, I was lucky enough that I could use the whole demo that John gave me as the basis for the track. And then with the power of editing, because we were working with Sony Digital, 48-track machines and stuff like that, we could edit the arrangement so it would work and just keep building. And the whole idea was just to keep building this monster hmm. just, and, and just to be – the, the video captures it really well. Yeah. You know, it's, it's you know that is a juggernaut rolling through. I can remember being in London, one of the famous rehearsal studios, rehearsing with a, an American band. No, it was an English band, but the head of A&R from somewhere just came bursting through the door and said, they've just played the gift on MTV, you know. Fucking amazing. Mm. You know, wow, that's, this, this album's going to be killer. And I'm sitting there while he's telling me this thing, and if only he knew how scared shitless I am from this album, from what's been done to it, you know, <laughs> from its birth to its vision, which I was, you know, it's their album, it's not my album, so if they yeah. want to change but and then it's then get this and they're going to get an album that's you know everyone's going to see through in two seconds the the rock songs up front you know you were talking about it yesterday bang 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 up front that's a good tactic when you know for for someone who wants to get attention well i mean look let's just diverge for one brief moment if yeah there's the business there's the, the, the artistry then there's the commerce and and the reality is commerce 
record company America, the, you know, the, the the gift was banned on MTV. You know, you got panicky sort of uh, execs or whatever. Why, why was it? Why was it banned on TV? Because of the uh, the butt nailing of the cross. Uh, uh, sorry, the um, the ha- ha- mallet of the nail into so, the Jesus I, thing. Yeah, I think that the rec- the record company were going to do it th- if they didn't have to lift a finger. Yeah, they weren't going to lift a finger. Yeah, if the album was full of it was kick, and it just took off, went through the roof. They'd be, they'd be the first ones there handing out the champagne. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But they still, if it hadn't taken off, they wouldn't have lifted a finger because this was their last studio album. Yeah. They didn't want to spend more money. They'd seen that X was had a decline. They're in the music business. They can yeah. see what's happening with the style of music. And you mentioned it yourself. The suits run off and look for the next big thing. Yeah. Everyone was at the same point, you know, in excess for yesterday's news. Well, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it's very hard for loyalty to maintain, especially when you come to a new decade as well. There's almost this cultural revolution when you go from the 60s to the 70s, 70s to the 80s. You know, it's almost generational, isn't it? You you, you go through that period. It is. It, it's very generational because as we talked about before, there's those key bands that have kicked off from the Beatles to the, you know, Nirvana, they've kicked off revolutions. And inside that, you know, like, for instance, the Fleetwood Mac that we listened to doing all that sort of stuff. To, when was that in the eighties? In the eighties, well, that was a mum, mamas and papas. So was the new version yeah. of the mamas and papas. Yeah, it was something to take someone's ilk in place. You know, the biggest band in the world. Whatever. Just, just a quick about Fleetwood Mac. You know, they had people. You know, rumors, rumors, rumors. But people forget they came and did Tusk, which was probably musically a far more creative endeavor from Lindsay and Tusk influenced me incredibly. Tusk, yes. Was- Favourite Fleetwood Mac album by a thousand. Yes. And you know that song, Tusk, I for years and years grew up not knowing it was Fleetwood Mac, and that's a, that's a credit to the genius of Lindsay Buckingham being able to almost pull a shifty over the audience going, well, look how different we can be and look how creative. That marching bands, you know. When that album came out, I think it was, gee, 1980 or something. 1980, yeah. Yeah, late, late. Uh, and um, at, at the same time, my father, my late father was, was in um, San Francisco and he got, he got wanted to buy me a present, so he went to a record store and said, what's the latest album to come out? To the 28-year-old would like or whatever I was. And so they, he got given this album, came back, and I met up with him, and he gave me In Through the Outdoor by Led Zeppelin. And that's my favourite Led Zeppelin album ever. You know? <laughs> I had Tusk and I had In Through the Outdoor. I took them up to my friend's house who lived in the hinterland behind the Gold Coast, and for a stereo system, he had a PA system because he was a singer, and we just pumped these two albums, must have been for two months, so loud. And Tusk was a double <laughs> album too, wasn't it? Exactly, double album, and then with, uh, topped up with In Through the Outdoor by Led Zeppelin. Just brilliant, two brilliant albums. All the bitter fighting makes no sense to me. We're only talking circles and losing sympathy. No time like the future Make signs cause I need ya You'll see, you'll see There are rivers running Just for you and me In the darkest hours Choices made to be I choose to pull my punches Don't you test my conscience You'll see, you'll see Cut your teeth and bring your pieces What you ask for Cut your 
Sorry, listeners, we'll get back to full moon. Okay, Make Your Peace, third track, was going to be the one that I think initially was sent to Mr. Charles. He thought maybe the, the range maybe potentially might not be. Yeah, let's get to how Ray got involved. We recorded most of the thing that I'd mentioned earlier, you know, the band were there for about a month. I went home, then it was Michelangelo and myself for two weeks and the band back for another two weeks on Capri, at which point our studio time had run out, so we decamped, if you will. We left by ferry. The rest of the band went back home from Naples, but Michael, Andrew, I, and Niven continued on to Paris to Gilliam Tell Studios in Paris for about a month to do overdubs and vocals and, you know, bits of rewrite. Again, and, yeah, we didn't need anyone else because everyone played guitar. Played the parts, and, yeah. yeah. You know, played keyboards, Andrew. All the bass parts, you know, and Andrew could do it all. And we didn't need to do the drums because it was just they were there and ready. So yeah, so we we, we went up we went up there and we and we're on a tour. Michael and I just were talking to one, you know, we were, we had our own studio. It wasn't really big. It wasn't the main studio, but it was an overdub studio, big big enough for us to work on, not mix on. We were only there to work in Paris for a month to do overdubs and vocals. And we were and the reason it was Paris is because Michael and Helena had a flat in Paris. That's why we're there. Yeah. And Michael and I said to the assistant one day, well, can we have a look around, you know, on the second day? So he took us around to look at the studio and we walked into this, took us into the studio and it was like a movie theatre. And he said, yeah, it used to be a movie theatre now it's just our orchestral stage where we can do orchestra. He said, Ray Charles does all this stuff here. All this orchestral stuff is done here and we just send it over to him and he sings it in his studio. And Michael and I looked at each other and went, Ray Charles. Ray Charles is my favourite singer of all time and and we both, yeah, wouldn't be great if we get him to sing like and say we were but a fucking great idea. One of those times we, yeah, you both get the idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah we're, totally, we're solved. But you the chicken and the small horn, isn't it? You know? <laughs> you, you just were so, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, imagine we could do that, you know, maybe we can pull this off. And so and that's, that, that's, that, that, that's what we did and um, went back and, and we sent Mr. Charles some songs. We sent him three songs. Uh, from memory, we sent, um, obviously, uh, the one he did. Yeah, Make Your Peace was our number one choice because I still think he would have killed it. Yeah, it's it's a bit high for it. It's a little high, but that's what we wanted, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we wanted that up, up there, you know. Make your peace. Yeah. Oh, I can yeah, really, yeah. I can still hear him singing it. So we, we knew that at that time and so we were lucky enough to know that pre-mix, pre-anything, you know, while we're doing overdubs, gave us inspiration to finish the track of Make Your Peace, gave us to, to finish the track. What's the one he sang on again? Um, uh, please, you got that? And, but they were just backup ones, you know. If, yeah. You know, we went back to saw Andrew, you know, he was working away in the control room, said it to him and he said, yeah, great, sounds great. So he was into it straight away and then we just, we, we just got the mechanics rolling on that. You know, obviously, you know, release-wise, France has been a good market for them, I guess, over the journey. Quite a pivotal European market that, pardon the pun, kick-started the kick album, I think, with it's, stuff there. It, the important thing about this this time in Paris, we know Michael's condition, right? Yeah. Uh, he and Helena uh, share a flat uh, uh, in Rue de Canet, Road of the Duck. <laughs> okay. Uh, in, so um, Rue de Canet, very small street, a uh, little four-storey, Typical houseman building, you know, maybe a bit, bit taller, not but narrower, just off Boulevard uh, Saint Germain, just and just before uh, that huge church. It's just a beautiful little place, hmm. and it's funny, you know, not funny at all. Chris Bailey dying, 
during that time in Paris, you know, I'd, I'd wander around from Montalembert, the hotel I was staying in, which is off just off the Champs Elysees, just off the um, Boulevard Saint Germain, and hook up with Chris Bailey, Michael Hutchins, Helena would be away in Milan or somewhere doing a fashion shoot or you know Brazil, and it'd just be Chris Bailey and you know what a you know you, you mentioned in last week and. Uh, the guy's an absolute legend. He's a legend. His brain is legendary. You know, it's yeah. just an erudite. Yes. And totally not what you would expect if you'd heard yeah. I'm Stranded. You know, then when, but then going back, if you listen to I'm Stranded, you get it. Yes, he is stranded in Brisbane. This, what am I doing here? And, and, and now that you mentioned without, you know, casting opinions from the bleachers, him and Michael must have fascinated each other in a way. Oh, they they did. Those brains that worked, you know, well, artistically, you know. Michael always respected people with intellect. You yeah. Know? We'd sit around a table. I can picture it in my mind so clearly, Rue de and going in and going up a flight of stairs and sat in the middle flat, middle, big open French doors overlooking a small uh, street, but a very French sort of looking back street, you know, and just drinking Corvassier, uh, cognac, just three of us, demolishing it, you know, cognac. Mm-hmm. You go in the bathroom for a piss and you just couldn't move for cosmetics, you know, <laughs> as well. And yeah, everything. And yet she was the most beautiful, natural woman, very good friend and um, so down to earth uh, and so normal, but she knew what her job was. But anyway, it back to, to, to Chris and um, Bailey. And we'd sit there and, and just talk about everything but that, you know. In fact, the famous line, you know, then we'd stroll around for a pool base one of those little French restaurants tucked around a corner, go upstairs, ah, Monsieur Michael, how are you? You know, and, and we'd sit down, the three of us in the corner table, just locals, no one else, no tourists, nothing, and continue getting shit faced there. And, you know, and I remember one particular night, we were sitting there in the star, you know, the band wanted to do some shows. And he says, and I'll never forget this. He says, and this really summed Michael up. He said, that means I've got to go to the in-excess shop and put on the Michael Hutchins charisma coat and step out into the world where I'd rather be spending my Sunday mornings having eggs at a local cafe in Paris late morning and then strolling the antiquarian bookshops with Helena looking for the odd curiosity, bits and pieces here and there and finding some inspiration Mm. in, in life itself. Not going back on the, to the to the to, you know, the idolatry, false, the false idol path, you know, because by that stage he very much realised, and that's one of the things that I mentioned earlier, was a lot of the reason why everything started to change. You know, in excess, they're not just getting better musically, everything like that. Their brains, their minds, Michael's brains severely changed, hmm. but his deep intellect was still there. Hmm. It was his emotional. Intellect that was you couldn't tamper with because he certainly had a you know the confidence that I saw on a bus going to Wembley before the Baby Live concert in, in 1991 was not the same Michael that I saw on, on Capri at all. You know, he, he, for instance, he would ring me in the middle of the night, you know, third night in after having an argument with Gary Beers or someone like that, throwing a full can of beer at him or. You know, because we, everyone was so stupefied anyway. Well, it got, everyone got pretty drunk, but Michael, did it, there was an edge to it. Two in the morning, I, I, I would hear stuff being tossed around in the apartment because we're in the same building, you know, mm. both had 
beautiful villas that uh, oh. one on top of each other. Ring or he'd ring me. And I said, I'm fucking leaving the band. These guys just don't understand or whatever. And, and he's like, you know, and I know that Mike was seriously, mate, you and I both know there's no ferries getting off the island right now. <laughs> there's yeah. nowhere, no, nowhere to go. Yeah. You know, just, you know, I can't talk, you know, have a spliff, sit down, chat, you know, and, you know, have a drink, or whatever. Do you think issues that Michael faced, you know, with his injury and things like that, created a a paranoia and overreaction to scenarios, or oh, that would, would that be a bit simplistic to say I, that? I, I, think, I think that he'd lost a, a bit of confidence and needed a bit of reassurance. Quite often, you know, we'd be in the control room and he'd just pick up the phone and ring Bono. Now, he didn't have to do that in the control room in front of all of us. I mean, he could have gone off into his his villa and done and they'd just have a chat and, you know, whatever and things like that. And, and that was – so I could see that that – a bit of lack of self-confidence going on. I think I think it's interesting. Sometimes the most sort of successful people have an inner, not inferiority complex, but they have an inner turmoil, don't they? Sometimes genius oh, is what they do. Well, I personally feel, you know, I suffer from imposter syndrome. I cannot believe I've been this successful. <laughs> you know? And in, in artistically, in, in, but as people see it, people tell me what I've done yeah. and figures, et cetera. And so I, I still feel I'm not good enough. Uh, uh, I don't feel, oh, yeah, I could. Well, some do, days I do feel like when I've finished a project with my team that I can do any project there is. In general, yeah. uh, it would be like that Jimmy Barnes. You know, they're, they're, it's, it's, you can easily pick them. It's the people who don't want to be alone. Yeah. And I, I find uh, someone like Dave Grohl a really interesting interview because he's genuine, he's down to earth, he's generally reasonably content but he didn't buy all the press then and then and now and whatever there. And there's a sort of a self, he's sort of self-assured that he knows he's not as good as everyone thinks he is. Um, and there's something quite redeeming about that in life, isn't there? Being comfortable in your own skin. 100%, but, you know, I mean, he was in um, Nirvana, for God's sake. Yes. You tasted what idolatry was like there. That was yes. just, again, remember, that's off the charts, idolatry. Correct. For- for the first band, yeah. Even the, and Foo Fighters is, is idolatry now, but it's not like Nirvana. It's like, wait a minute, you can cut the air with a knife type thing like the Beatles. It's that mm. change of era. Mm. So again, he's had a great education, Dave Grohl. You know, and he is quite down to earth, great guy. He, he knows how lucky he is to be doing what he's doing. Just a, a good person, you know. There's a, Eddie Vedder, very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even though not as famous, probably. I think. I think for Michael within XS, I guess though. I mean, Michael was public, but he was private. Andrew was sort of private, private. Yeah, but you've got to remember it was the public that made Michael public. And What I'm getting at is the heavy lifting. All right, Michael probably didn't do as much media as other guys did, but he did a lot of media. And he held the pressure of the band on his shoulders a lot, I guess. Of course. Every young girl in the audience, they're not there to see him excess. They're there to see Michael. Mm. And, and when Michael sing, and, it's just, and I tell all my singers this exact same phrase, Michael. Tell me a story and make me believe it. That's all you've got to do when you're singing the song to me, man. That's all you've got to do. That, and not, I don't have to tell you this every song. I can tell you this one time before, because you're at that point now. Not like when we're doing Shabu Shabar where I'd peak cobble stuff together to prove to you that you could sing. Because, yeah, you didn't have that confidence back then until mm. we did the song, as we talked about. Mm. It was till, And that took hours to edit that together. 2,000 gigs later, yeah. And now 2,000 gigs later, he's gone past that right now. Hmm. And now he's, he knows how to sing. He's got his range. He's got everything. He's got all the tools that he needs. The only piece of advice I really need to give him, tell me a story 
and make me believe it. Sounds pretty much like a tin riff, or a bit Andrew. Right? It's so you know, it's very hard to get it right. Yeah. But uh, but we played that song. That's it was just a sequence. I came up with the sus four bit down 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 because it gave us two climbing opportunities. So that that part there, and again, I, I I joked a little bit about that part. Sounds a little bit like Summer of '69, Brian Adams. One hundred percent, and that's it's it's very perceptive of you because. That's the bit that I wrote, you know. Yeah, okay. Um, it's, um, <laughs> we won't tell Brian. <laughs> no, no, and, and I didn't. I wasn't thinking of Brian Adams at that time. I was thinking more uh, ACDC at that time when we did stuff like with the major than the sus four. Down, 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 down. But it does. It gives it that mid-song sort of change, you know, and it, it takes does. it somewhere. Yeah. It, it, it does indeed. But, but it was... Definitely, you know, the whole song, if, if, if we were thinking anything single at that time, mm, this could be our first single off the album, we would have been thinking at that time. As yeah. far as the outro it being too long, I don't have memories about that, but I these days I would think it was a bit long. I don't but, think I said it for that one. It might have been The Messenger I said it on, but anyway. Oh, the, sorry. It might have been The no, Messenger I might have said no, it on that one. But, no, but, no, but this is yeah. chorus too early or something like that. Oh, look, I think on a lot of the tracks on this album, they they sort of could have gone, they probably, if I compare to Shabu Shabar and whatever, they probably put two verses, hit the chorus. Sometimes at least they did one verse, hit the chorus. Exactly right. And that would have been, you know, you can't escape influence of the time. No. Subconsciously. Sure. And and similar to the way people were naming the songs with one word title, they were also economising songs themselves. Yes. You know, look at the, the shoe stare movement, you know, for a start, you know, it just, it's almost like punk music. It's a very basic. Well, sort of the, the, this era was this minimalist, less is more, let's take one of the 80s. You, you've got to take similar to when uh, uh, getting off track here, when Jimmy Barnes and I remixed his greatest hits album and we listened to it, we couldn't believe how loud the snare drum was. It's, that's, that's impossible. We must have the wrong mix. That snare was ridiculously loud. You know, because you know, and that's because now we're in the late nineties mixing this uh, and remixing this album. Listen to mixes that have been done in the eighties. Yeah. Music had changed. Yeah, everything had changed, but subconsciously we, it, it changed our ears. Yes, because what we thought was normal back ten years ago was now saying, "What? It's ridiculous!" You know, who would do something like that? Yeah. And it was all about. But there was a reason for it, psychology-wise. I mentioned the snare scene loud, but that because it was a white man's decade. The on beat. Right. The black man with the downbeat, the kick drum, yeah. that was the pump. The, uh, and that, and, re- and reggae was more of a 4 2 thing, wasn't it? Is that right? That, sort of. 
Three, four, eight, four, two, two, yeah. But yeah, the, the emphasis went away from the on-beat to the down-beat. Now, I, you know, I could do a paper on this for ANU for sure, <laughs> uh, because I just think that no one realised that, you know, because in the 80s music, unless we're in excess, coming back to Full Moon, Dirty Hearts were great, because from day one, when we all talked pre-Shabushabar, they said, yeah, we're sort of fun, and, you know, we want to be a mixture of that. So luckily, they had the downbeat and the on-beat. You know, that we could yeah. use to push any song. You know, if you go back through and listen to all that 80s rock, great rock tracks, Def Leppard, you name it, it's all concentrating on the on the on beat. Well, I guess it's like fashion, isn't it? You look back yeah. in the era and time and go, it really is steeped in a moment. Yeah, but then again, I, you know, it's funny because I, when I listen to say I'm on, in the car and I hear What's My Scene by the Hoodoo Gurus, sounds okay to me. But it really got to a point at some point where it was, Everything became very much the on-beat, you know, and poppy and stuff like that before the backbeats did the cool feel stuff. Fascination for the limits of love. Should I track five and through the wonders of post-production and editing and uh, continuity, we actually have a couple of guests just arriving in, one into our own podcast and one who's been a, a great donator and recent guest on the podcast. We have B, who's joining us for track five. I'm only looking the sexy voyeur song. How timely. Very timely, hey? <laughs> yes. And we have Darren Jones, who was on a couple of weeks ago and was the proud uh, donator and we're much appreciated uh, for the Decadence vinyl album that went off. But welcome, B, and welcome, Darren. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, Mark. Hi, 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 and, and uh, hello to all of you. Looking forward to this. Where are you at? We're at I'm Only Looking. So, I, yeah, we're going to go to you, Mark. Tell us a bit about I'm Only Looking in the reference point of you, but also Mr Eno doing some mixing on this. I'm very interested to know how that came about. It was a, a feel that had come about while we were in, um, in Capri, and it was just we were, John had been experimenting with samba-type feels and all that sort of stuff. And so we, we sort of tried to paint a picture of, you know, like walking into a, Casablanca nightclub open to the sunset as well outside of a suave Michael in a in a 40s suit just cruising in in sunburning his way in was the feel of the song that we were trying to create at that point so we just sort of nice. built around that image <laughs> I mean no video was ever made of it but I always said you know like well, this there, is- well there was there was there was there was a video. Yeah, but it's a bit more but, seedy but, but, than... But, 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 <laughs> it was a very sleazy video. Yeah. The one, the one that I used for the song, because yes. I've got to have a picture in my head because as I explained, it's like a movie director when you're making a song. Yeah. So yeah. I, my, the picture of mine was just Michael was a matinee singer just cruising in between the tables of a, a restaurant as the sun has got a golden sunset. It's just set people dressed beautiful cocktail dresses, having cocktails, and there's a samba band on stage just suddenly playing and, and him just sort of walking in, you know, in that 40s type of era. I would have liked to have seen that video. Well, that's to, that was in my head. That was yeah, no, I like that one much better. The one that they used, it was in the, we used to call it the Dinosaur Museum in Sydney. Hmm. 
that's where it was filmed a lot of it. I know exactly uh, I some of the images. I'm like, I know yeah, that, that dinosaur. <laughs> there was a risk taken, you know. It would have been great to go that way and do that sort of thing uh, uh, with it. But politics, for a lot of reasons, I think it worked out that someone had the idea that, you know, let's give young filmmakers a go and let them come up with what they come up with. Mm. And that was thought about very early in the piece, so even when we were all still on the island. And remember, we'd gone from the island twice on the island, then to Paris and then to LA, all in that one. I think, I think the, uh, the track itself has a, you know, a very funky sort of rhythm, as you said, a samba-type sort of rhythm there. And then it goes mm. into this really interesting sort of brass, you know, type tinges there, that the, the mixing and the producing side. Tell us about Brian Eno, how he, he got involved. The Brian Eno idea came from Chris, I'm pretty sure. It wasn't an unusual thing, and, and his job was just to do a mix of it. And that's, you know, he may have added a little bit of pieces to it, or whatever, or his payment might have been to do to actually work on it. He might have said, "Well, I want a producer's credit." He might. I don't know. I I haven't looked at the credits lately to to know what what his credit is. But um, but you, you you mentioned that he was a producer of the track, and I thought, gee, that's weird. I thought we produced it in in Italy, but um, but but we did send it off, and I spoke to Brian about mixing it, and you know, we chatted on the phone just about the song, and he had my guide mix and and the way he went with it. I don't see a lot of difference in, in a lot of ways. You know, it's quite interesting. It still captures for me the original image that I, I had in my head, for sure. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the main thing. Had you ever worked with um, Eno before? Never. No, and with, in this occasion, uh, by this stage, when, when Brian got involved, we'd already gone to LA and, and did the all, a lot of mixing well, with Bob, Bob Clearmountain. And then I'd come back to Capri because I was living there by that stage and the studio was up the road and I just wasn't totally happy with all the mixes. And so I remixed The Gift, I remixed uh, Cut Your Roses Down, which I know we're not on that particular song at the moment. Yeah. But Bob Clearmountain had done a, a mix of it and I thought that's really great up to that point. And then I didn't like it from that point, so I did a new mix of it and just added half of Bob's mix, literally half of it, mm. made a, a cut, you know, an edit point, and then add my mix to that. Mm. You know, and it's pretty hard to tell the difference. Yeah, but but it's um, it was just something we did. So the mixing aspect would go on for some time after because you remember this album wasn't released until November '93. Yeah. Yeah, we were recording this album in uh, December 92. Mm. So they had a lot of gestation period in, in the post-production period where people can start thinking about changing running orders and, and doing you know, overthink situations too much, too many marketing ideas or, you know, obviously the politics of where the record company is at now with their contract really running out of time because it wasn't released in November, November 93. Mm-hmm. And so all that time, so Brian Eno, as someone said, well, let's get him to do a mix of a track. Yeah, great idea. We've got Julian Mendelssohn to do a mix uh, of Beautiful Girl on, on Welcome to Wherever You Are, you know, and we use both those mixes. And Julian's one of my great, great mates. But, yeah, it wasn't unusual for, for to, to, okay, Brian, have a, you have a shot, you know, and I'm sure it's, 
it's nice to have Brian Eno's name on the record as well. So his contribution to the whole thing was just the mix, but he was using what we had as a guide already. He may have included some extra bits and pieces that, that, that I, to tell you the truth, I haven't sat down and really earholed that song. Once I finish a record, I pretty much never listen to it again. Just a, just a quick thing, we'll wrap up by my looking. I think uh, last week we were talking about the difference between an engineer and a producer, and we we're going to talk about the mixing, a.k.a. Bob Clearmountain or whatever. But tell us the mixing versus the engineer. Okay, but uh, again, as I mentioned, the, the, the mix, the, someone has to put it onto tape, so to speak, or put it onto the hard drive or put it onto the recording uh, medium. Someone's got to supervise the process of not only that but the music is that the right song? Is that the right tempo? Is that the right arrangement? What can we do? Should we just just leave that alone? That's not good enough. That's me. And a lot. And most of the time, I will mix the record as well. And ninety nine percent of records that I do, I mix. But occasionally, we'll get in someone else to do a mix, which I've had done a few times. Or I will mix with Bob Clearmount. Bob Clearmount and I first worked together on the Divinals album in 1982 in New York City. That's how long I've known Bob. Yep. So for me, to, to, it was first when, when they asked they asked me, well, how are you going to mix the album? I said, well, I want to do it with Bob. And that's just he and I in a room with a big console just sitting there, him playing tracks over and over again, but him, him just getting his putting the instruments in the perspective that he hears them, which is the same as we all hear them, but he has an uncanny ability to just place them just so. And there's a classic example of Bob Clearmountain mixing on an album called Avalon by Roxy Music, which is just like, it's it. the best. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. one of the best mixed albums ever, and particularly if you know the backstory. I know we're getting away from in excess, but there is a talking about engineers and, and mixers. And the backstory to that was that Roxy Music were at Montserrat came up with each song with 12 minutes. By the time Bob finished them, they were down to 340. The arrangements had changed, the clarity was there, etc., etc., etc. And it, so the, the mixing engineer is a really important person. They they, they can add a, a perspective change on the music. They can't change the music so much. Or, or what you've recorded. But the thing is, it's always nice to have someone you trust as a, a, a extra overview set of ears who you can bring at the very end when you're starting to get cabin fever having listened to this music for so long and getting hung up on, is that a hi-hat too high or is that backing vocal too low? To have someone just come in fresh, big picture, you know they've got great ears, you know they know how to, you know, you've got 48 tracks of music they can balance they can do a balance with fresh ears. Yeah. I think yeah, I think I saw his name first when I was a kid for Alive and Kicking Simple Minds, which still sounds fantastic, you know? Again, I was so lucky. I met Bob Clearmountain in nineteen eighty. I'd gone to New York to meet when I was head of AR for Warners. And I went to I was invited to power station to meet Arif Martin, if you know who Arif Martin is. And I met a guy called Narada Michael Walton, who was working with the young engineer called Bob Clearmountain on a Sister Sledge album. <laughs> and so I just hung up there and Bob just, you know, just hung out for a couple of days at the studio after that. Mark, can I ask, with Bob's approach, obviously the albums from an mm-hmm. excess perspective have a completely different sound, but from his approach to the same job that he always did, did he always have the same vision or outcome 
or the same processes in place regardless of what what the boys re- put down on 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 tape like absolutely absolutely no question about that at all he, he right down to using the most basic yamaha rev one effect vocal effect on normal was his normal reverb. He wouldn't sit there and craft reverbs or anything like that. There's a major space station, Publison harmonizer, French harmonizer. These pieces of gear I'd seen with him since I first worked with him in 1982. Now I was working with him 10 years later and 11 years later again. He still had the same staff mm-hmm. and same approach, you know, just played the track over and over and just let it fall into place. You know, it's, it's, which is the same approach as I do as well. You know, using these sounds that are it's funny you know they're just they're just right but he's pretty good with his eq of just making every track have its own pocket without being obvious so yeah you you have produced lots of artists things like that and i won't ask you to give up names and things but by the sounds of it you know with the ability to produce and the ability to have it mixed and engineered, you must be able to sort of, in some respects, take these very thin demos and somehow put them together to make these really thick sounds that that bear no correlation to the original sound. You know, there's there's one one word for it. It's called money. (laughs) It's called money. If you can afford, you know, not like a lot of albums you go in there, you know, I've done many decent budget albums where I go in, I'll do the engineering, but I'll get an engineer in. Do the engineering and the mixing, you know. It's very rare, you know, if we've got a huge budget, you're really successful well, shit, we can afford the budget. Let's throw in a Bob Clem out in here, let's throw in a Eno there, throw in a Rage here. You know, you can you can afford to do that because it's seen as okay, that's gonna improve the yeah, we've already up to a certain sales plateau. So it's let's throw some candy in. Butch big from oh. ga- sorry, B. Butch big no, from, from from garbage. Yeah. Who produced never never mind seemed yep. to take what I think I think Kirk Cobain had a very thin I didn't think he had a great voice but the multi layers vocals that him and I think Steve Albini put on those never mind tracks and a lot of that grunge movement where they multi layered the vocal that they, they took a like a three piece band made them sound like a six piece band is that some parallels in the art of the producer there that you could share there is if you're talking about Nirvana's first album you know the great the thing about the, the, that album, it's a very small band. Yes. Mm. And and that, that means you've got wide dynamic range to play with. You know, there's no questions that Butch Vig did a great job of of controlling the atmosphere and making everyone comfortable enough to make a great record. And that's what that, you know, producer's role, you know, Daniel Lamar, you know, rule number one, make everyone comfortable. Record everything, make everyone come. That way you're going to get best performances. And Butch obviously had that ability when working with Nirvana because it shows in the recording, the passion shows in the recording. So he's giving the right direction, you know, hmm. about, you know, maybe throwing little idioms out there every now and again or whatever, you know, and even in the music, possibly getting involved in the arrangement similar to me, you know, which are quite obvious when we think, oh, well, hang on, we've got to have something that sort of gets here so we can market this thing or whatever. Mm. But that style, but making them feel that comfortable that they produce that live performance in the studio is what you're after. Yeah. And, and Barna, that's what happened. So the, capturing the vocals, that was it. Uh, yeah, you get a thicker sound, sure. Get closer mm. to the mic, don't have to sing so loud. And when you're casting, you know, back off. Mm. You know, 
but in a dead atmosphere. Tricks of the trade. 10cc, uh, uh, Lockham and, and Bohemian Rhapsody, they were very multi-laid, weren't they? Again, I was. I spoke to Eric from 10cc about I'm not in love. Again, we're not talking about in excess. Yeah. But in the for about four hours in a bar in in Sydney, and they they did 360 something vocal overdubs. Wow. Wow. That. And that was we're talking in the 70s. Yeah. So the, uh, the, the, over- the equipment. Yeah. So that they're probably using some a lot of tape. Yes. Was, they're, they're yeah. using. They at the most sixteen track tape, but they'd be bouncing. They'd they'd record, you know, eight lots of vocals and mix them down to two tracks, then put them on track one and two. Do another eight vocals, mix them down to two tracks, put them on three and four. So they they just multi multi just doing and doing doing doing. Okay, well, please can we move on to the next track, which is please you got that? There you go. Charles and Michael, uh, uh, tell us about your experiences there that you haven't shared before. How did Michael and Ray sort of get on together? As we talked about earlier, everyone knows, Michael and I were in the studio in Paris and someone said, oh, the French guy said, this is the studio where Ray Charles does all these recordings and we, with orchestra and goes to Paris. That's how Ray got on the record because we thought that up. So we fast forward, LA, Chateau Marmont. Niven, me, and Michael staying at the chateau. How cool was this? Nice. <laughs> you know, Helena turns up. Michael <laughs> gives me a copy of Neuromancer to read, which again, like, whoa, blows my mind. Again, and uh, and fun and games. And then, but Michael and I went off to, um, and and Niven went off to Ray Charles's studio, which is all grey because him being blind, you don't see it. the building's grey. The, the tour bus is grey. The cage that holds the tour bus is grey. It's just grey. We had to be there at a certain time. Ray had, had rung me in Italy about something, and I was asked, was concerned that he had a forty-eight track tape machine. Oh, we got everything. Don't you worry about anything. Just turn up. You're going to be here at this time, and I'll be ready. And uh, just, but have you got? Don't ask me about anything. I got everything. Anything anyone could ever need. Okay. okay. <laughs> Maybe yes. So we turned up at the studio by morning, and um, Michael and I and Niven. And we met by his uh, one of his assistants. Said, "Look, could you, when you're talking to Mr. Charles, can you please address him as Mr. Charles at all times?" Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we're ushered into the uh, to the studio area and into a boxy, very boxy control room with quite old, a decent desk, but you know, custom built American desk from the seventies, probably uh, not too bad. An English engineer in there called Mr. T. And looking through the glass window in front of us out into the big studio, with his back to me was Ray Charles in front of a Rhodes piano in front of him. To his left was a grand piano and to his right was a Hammond B3 organ. And that was his back to me. So that in front of him was the whole Ray Charles orchestra. 
in a backing vocalist, brass and everything. How big and was the, that? Oh, gee, must be 30 piece at least, wow. you know, with backing vocals. I, I, it, it was hard to say. And, you know, we had the flip mics on and listening to what was going on and they were rehearsing the opening. Ray was going to be playing Vegas and they were doing going through the, the intro for, you know, bring Ray on stage intro and hit the, how they, you know, do the big build-up in Vegas and they were backing vocals were just killing it, doing all this sort of stuff. Anyway, Mr T gets on the microphone onto the talk bank and says, oh, uh, Mr Charles, uh, uh, Mr. Mr Opens, Mr Hutchinson, he's seen you about uh, an, an excess song. Oh, yeah, right up. <laughs> and then you can hear him say, you guys, remember, da, 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 you know, just you know, couldn't catch it all. Anyway, this blind guy just comes straight up. In, up the stairs, bang, bing, bing, walk straight in. No, obviously knows every inch of the room without looking at anything. Introduces himself, a very intimidating presence for me in particular because it's my favourite singer of all time, always has been, and was said, okay, this isn't the tracks. <clears throat> he wanted to get on with it. So question for you, uh, his piano abilities, was there any notion that we might be able to turn please and have a piano solo in there or something? Was that a consideration or was hard enough just to ask for the vocal? Never in a, in a million years did we even think of saying playing any other particular instrument. Ray Charles is Ray Charles. You listen to In the Heat of the Night, you listen to Georgie. There's only one thing you get from, you want from Ray, and that's that sound. Sure, but it's a bit like having Elton John come into a recording and then have his vocals but not take advantage of his piano skills. Was there a thought that you could or, or no, the song never, didn't fit it? No, never, 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 was, never occurred to us ever, ever, to include him instrumentally. What we needed... Because remember, you know, you know, we wanted originally another song, and it was all just like, oh, you know, I can remember us being, in, we can just hear Ray sing these songs, you know. Mm. So just to right. can, I, can I ask Mark, tapping into that point, yeah. really specifically, at the point of Full Moon being recorded, obviously, when you say just then about we needed another song. Was, was Ray and, and Please an early intervention or was it something that was like really last minute to be included to try and salvage the, the, the 12 tracks or not at the all. mentality? Again, as I, as I repeated, you know, after we left uh, uh, Capri and did with all the tracks and we always were going to go to Guillaume Tell in Paris and, and for a few weeks just Michael, Andrew and I, Richard Lowenstein turned up for a little bit and just work on the songs, do the vocals and do all the Andrew overdubs, you know, because Andrew's just multi-instrumentalist. Anything. Mm. We all need the drum tracks for fine, all that sort of stuff. But any bass that needed backing up, any guitar, anything, you know, boom, any rewrite, Andrew Perfect, Michael, singer, great. Worked out. Quite early into it, Michael and I wanted to get a tour at the studio and a young engineer took us around and took us into, we were in a mix overdub room into another studio at Gideon Tell, which was a big movie theatre, an ex-movie theatre, and said, this is where Ray Charles and the or- uh, records his orchestra. We send the tapes to him for overdub. That's when the idea came up, during the overdubs. There was no, oh, we need to get a famous singer in. Oh, we need to do this. Yes. With Ray, it, it genuinely came up as we looked at this theatre stage in a recording studio that was an ex-movie theatre, and we're told that Ray Charles' orchestra records here. And it was a different song, wasn't it, as well, originally? Uh, uh, we wanted Make Your Peace. That's um, right. Because I can hear Ray just up there. But then again, I hear Ray from when he was young, I guess, mm. you know. 
and we're and, and and but you got that need is is a lot more. You can play with that more. It's it's, it's, it's down a tone, and, and so it's easier for him to, to sing to. So it was understandable. Mm-hmm. And mind you, with that, it, it is alleged, and I can't quite you know I, I can't say it's true that he got a lot of the publishing for that song, if not all of it, as part of his payment. Because that I mean, it's one tough bugger. You know, he could have said, I want to be the producer of the song and they would have given it to him. Yeah. You were lucky to get him on the Letterman show then. Absolutely. Yeah. Very lucky. That would have been a double pull. That would have been in excess and that would have been NBC or CBS, sorry, David Letterman. Mm. And um, to get him on that would have been... um, that was, a, that was huge. Yeah, it was. Great for and, the band. But, mm. but, but, but and don't worry, it wouldn't have been lost on Ray that was great for the band and there would have been something, you know, it might have been included in, oh, we'll take publishing or something. I don't know. Everyone's a shrewd businessman, but at the end of the day, he does collaborations like that because he also cares too, musically, professionally, and so... Things like Letterman, he would have been very happy for the band to get that exposure out of his involvement. Is that is that right? I don't think so. No, Ray Charles is an icon. Ray Charles is above singer, above everything, everything. He's an icon. One of those, you know, he's just probably maybe 20 or 50 or 100 icons in America, but he's legitimate. But he's a legitimate icon. He doesn't need anyone. You know? And it sounds like he, he really makes decisions you know, based on what's good for him. And look, a lot of artists, you know, cross over, like you look at, you know, Lady Gaga with Tony Bennett, they like to be seen to crossing generations, old and young and old, young to old. I believe that's genuine. I believe with when it comes to someone like Ray, who again is my um, my favourite singer of all time, uh, none, Daylight is second. He's one tough nut who does everything for Ray Charles and he's learnt from the, the um, you know, Johnny B. Good, what's his name? Chuck Berry experience. Chuck, yeah. Mm. You know. But and what I got from that Sony album, then they released little bits of in the studio when Michael's asking politely for him to grasp a certain part of the track. There is that, a respect from Ray to Michael that I, I hear. Mm. That, that recording was, that was in the afternoon Mm-hmm. when Ray had cleared the orchestra out and then Ray said, okay, let me learn the song. So he goes down into the studio and we just keep playing the, the track back to him and he it had the words in front of him and was trying to figure out how to sing the melody and obviously Michael was tutoring him in how to do that melody. And, of course, he, he, Michael was very respectful. Did he say Mr Charles? Probably they did. both, well, Michael was very respectful. Of course he would be because you were saying, you know, such a icon, but they felt like I, I, a respect yeah. for Michael back oh, yeah, and, no, and the, the tone the, that um, Mr Charles was talking. Yeah, I, I, I don't think Ray would have been overly aware of Michael. I don't think he was overly aware of anyone outside his uh, circle. He might have heard of Inks or Inks or whoever they are and, and might have heard, you know, by chance. I mean, you know, when I was in there, there weren't radios playing all over the place and I don't know what it's how, like at home. How does he agree to it then? Like it's, it's, it's just you know? publishing. <laughs> money. <laughs> well, yeah, but everything's above money. You're talking about artists that I, have but uh, I, I, Listen, don't get, listen, Darren, don't get me wrong. Not everyone's like Lady Gaga and teaming up with Tony Bennett. That's a real, that's a warm and fuzzy thing. You know, it's a good thing. (laughs) And it makes sense. Record company would say, oh, gee, can we do this? Go to Lady Gaga. Oh, what a great idea. I'd love to see with Tony Bennett. Tony Bennett, how much am I going to get? Yeah, is she any good? 
Yeah. Oh, she sounds great. Yeah, let's do something. Mm. These guys are professional. Mm. Mm. They want to put the smile on and we've known each other for years, brother. I've sat at the Letterman Show. I've sat in the audience twice in the Letterman Show, right? And you see all pally, pally, David's talking to the guests and they're getting on and all that. Commercial break, boom, nothing. And this is Manny from the UK. This is Lisa Mack from Brisbane, Australia. And this is Felicia from Everett, Washington, USA. And that's a wrap. All right, Bevel, it's always great access again with Mark there. It was good to have you on for that little second part of the album there. And um, he's such a, a, a lovely man who gives us so much time and um, support. So, um, And for those, again, who uh, have been living under a rug or didn't sort of un- undertake the Full Moon Dirty Hearts album at the time, uh, we hope that uh, this last sort of three weeks, I guess, has given you enough information to invest some time into it because we think it's a, it's a worthy uh, uh, allocation of your time. Yeah, I loved um, listening to some of that. I loved the, the bit about the gif. How cool was that when he said, if you listen properly, you can hear screaming and animals and there's hidden things. So I want to really go back and listen to that song and see if I can hear any animals. And just the fact that was John's guitar demo and things like that. I They're know. little things we just don't know. Yeah. yeah. And and the fact that it was called South of France to begin with. Wow. <laughs> That's well yes. cool. That's really, really cool. Thank you, Mark. This is how, this is what this podcast is all about going deep into all the songs i can't wait yeah. to um yeah to all right b well uh auction process uh we are pleased to announce we had a winner of the uh the auction last week which is our vinyl version of decadence uh i think he would like to be anonymous i think from reading between the lines um it's no one famous or anything like that although his <laughs> first name is quite iconic we'll leave it at that um but he's a big collector and he was i think looking at some of the email correspondence was was really like stoked to win but also like wow how'd you get up to that because i've got a big treasure trove of things and this has been one i think missing in his collection so um that prize or that particular uh record and and we're happy to disclose because i think it's on ebay uh did go for i think was it 1175 is that right yes yeah which which we felt you know i mean obviously we're so thankful for the for the money and um you know we (laughs) we were a couple of grand short for our uh our bus trip and everything there and it's just really going straight back into the podcast as all this stuff does um and we are so thankful that things like these type of auction contributions can keep us going and um as i said you know the absence of of new patrons these auction items help us and then you know when we don't have auction items the patron access helps us as well so big heartfelt thank you to our winner well not only that also to yes to everybody that um, was was bidding and kept the, the bidding going it was very exciting watching it over the last couple of days go from like 400 all the way up to 700 and then over a yeah. thousand and thank you so much again Darren um what an absolute gentleman you are oh yeah 100 to, um, to donate that to the podcast um yeah it's, absolutely it's um yeah it's wow Hayden we're yeah, so absolutely. so gifted by having so many lovely people helping us with this podcast in terms of the competitions B I'm not sure we don't have anything live at the moment do we uh or we do Uh, not at the moment um no um i'm I'm a little bit busy oh we drew the one didn't we for jenny the other week she won didn't she 
What was that? Uh, the one we had to listen to the episodes and things like that. We drew oh, her name yeah, out, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's gone. Um, so yeah. um, I, I did mention earlier, I wasn't sure if you were listening to me, but um, we're having a quiz on the actual bus tour. Oh, okay. To see of Helen. Helen's been going through our episodes and she's come up some um, really good questions. Oh, great. So what I'm, I've asked Helen to do is also release those to me and we can put them into our um, newsletter for the next cupping. Oh, great. I think she's Lovely. got 40, what a great idea. 40 quiz questions and we've got loads of prizes to give out to the bus crew. So um, it's got lots of things, it's very exciting things that are going to be happening on the actual bus tour. But more than anything, I just can't wait to give everybody a hug and have a proper chin whack about in excess for a whole weekend. Oh, my God, it's going to be brilliant. <laughs> and uh, there's one little hint we can say. Uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Are you going to? Oh, no, shh. That's all I'll say. That's all I've said. Just said Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. That's all I've said. Okay. Now, the fan engagement. Uh, this is your baby here. Tell us uh, some people we'd like to sort of acknowledge who have been interacting on the socials. Okay. Well, I would like to give out a lovely um big thank you to everybody that um, has been chatting to me on Facebook. One guy called Ben and then Maria but I also want to give a big shout out to somebody called Fee that I met today as well so lovely to have met you I hope you're enjoying the 100 episodes that you're going through at the moment um give a big um, a big a big shout out to our new friend Curtis who's been listening to the show as well and going to be helping us out with the filming Excellent. Well, uh, we're now at that point. We do the tribute song uh, of the week, B. And I thought, well, we've gone in the last three weeks, three weeks with Full Moon. We've done the Freedom Deep, which was the fourth single uh, here in Oz. Uh, I think uh, last week uh, we went and did Time, which was the third single, um, and the one that was sort of, uh, I think, from a film clip point of view, done at Bar- uh, Barker Hanger. Um, and in a weird way, we're working backwards to probably single number two, which was Please You've Got That. And what we would love to do is put out today as a bit of a tribute, a little bit of an acknowledgement, probably the most uh, iconic live moment from the album. That was the uh, David Letterman show with Michael, uh, with uh, Mr. Charles and the band playing live. Uh, and for those who haven't actually heard it, uh, this is the live version of Please You've Got That. Uh, and we think this is such a, a, a lovely sort of uh, acknowledgement of a song and a time in place where uh, a true hero of the band and I think a true hero of Mark, Opitz uh, being Mr. Charles, uh, was there uh, playing with In Excess and it's there for all to see on YouTube but it's all for your earballs today to listen with us. So it's a goodbye from me. And it's a goodbye from B, but make sure you turn up the volume.